Why don't we open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 2 and remind ourselves of that promise that is made there. Genesis chapter 2. What I'd like to do in this assembly is review from different angles the subject of total depravity and deal with it further and convince you of it and show you its weight in both uh, doctrinal disputations and most of all, its weight in adding to our appreciation for salvation and the glory that we should give God who saved us from such a predicament that we got ourselves into by our first father. I don't want to take very long on any one place because there's lots of places we need to go today. Genesis 2.17 is the promise that God gave Adam in the Garden of Eden, and it was surely fulfilled. And we never want to forget it, and on its basis, we argue the doctrine of salvation. Without understanding this great theme, we cannot rightly defend our doctrine of unconditional eternal life. We cannot well defend unconditional election without showing, unless it's unconditional, no one would be elected, no one would be saved because of this promise. You know, we open the Bible and we find this in the second chapter. As we're closing the Bible, we find in Revelation chapter 20 these words, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection on such the second death shall have no power. Opening of the Bible, death in trespasses and sins. Closing of the Bible, a resurrection from that death by the power of God that saves us from eternal death. And so throughout, we have described this vital phase of salvation that is the changing of our corrupt nature from Adam to the glorious nature of the Lord Jesus Christ and of our new man. But let's get started here by looking at the promise God made to Adam. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The words that we want to remember always are, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. We have a death promised based on the certainty of God's word, but it is a death that occurred that day. Adam died physically 930 years later because Genesis 5.5 tells us that. And Adam died the second death unless he was redeemed. He shall die the second death in the great day of judgment. But something happened to him that day because Genesis 2.17 declares it so. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Well, the devil came along in chapter 3 and verse 4 and said, Thou shalt not surely die. A very small word change, but totally changes the doctrine. From the positive statement that Adam would die to the negative statement that he wouldn't die. Chapter 3 shows us that Adam and Eve ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, following the lead of the devil. And we find the character traits of them described in the middle part of chapter 3, showing that a great change had taken place. 
reading Genesis 3 should bring to your attention the tension, the strife, the conflict, the disagreement, the adversarial relationship that now existed between God and Adam and Eve. Whether it's their self-righteous efforts to cover their wickedness, or whether it's their fleeing to hide in a devilish fear of God, or it's the blame game that they played on Eve and on the devil, and so forth, we can see that there was no repentance, there was no humility, there was no confession, there was no grief, there was no exalting and praising God by these two who knew Him so well. They had been corrupted. Adam and Eve died. As soon as they touched the fruit with their mouth and ate of it, they knew that they were naked. Guilt and shame entered the human race and their hearts were corrupted. They now looked at things very differently. They resented God. They were afraid of each other. They were ashamed and they knew that they were guilty. But their guilt did not cause them to repent. Their guilt caused them to look for some religious invention that would make them feel somewhat better. And when God made an appearance on the scene, they went and hid themselves in the trees of the garden. And you can go through the phrases and clauses of the middle part of chapter 3, and you can see that they are now corrupt before their God. And that is total depravity in its first picture in the Scriptures. It's very foundational and necessary for any study of salvation for us to start here. If you start with the doctrine of election with a neophyte Arminian, they hate the doctrine of election because they don't want God making a choice for them. They want to make the choice. They can't understand why they can't make the choice because they assume they have a free will. But if they go back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3 and start where we start, and we need to help them do that, then they start with Adam being dead. And Adam being dead, we have to ask what died. And when we look at Genesis chapter 3 and through the rest of Scripture, we find that his will died. We find that his desires died. We find that his his affections died. His inclinations, his perception, his appreciation of anything good, godly, and spiritual and heavenly died. Man cannot believe on Jesus Christ because he will not. And he will not because he resents God and anything spiritual. He doesn't have a free will. His will is now bound up and corrupted and and held in chains by sin, which reigns in him and controls him and directs him. And so we must start in the right place if we're going to present salvation to others. And we need to start in the right place for us to appreciate our salvation by looking at how terrible Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden actually was. It is a distinguishing mark of our church, which separates us from even Calvinistic Baptist churches in Greenville, that we believe in unconditional eternal life, and that we believe that regeneration must take place in its entirety before hearing and believing the gospel. Both of those two things are supported and then proven by total depravity. If God does not intervene and regenerate a sinner against his will, over his mind, and change his heart, there is no threat fearful enough or offer enticing enough to ever get him to sincerely look Godward. He'll hide in the trees. He'll make himself aprons of fig leaves. 
but he will not come and repent to God. And so God must change man's nature. Total depravity is the personal, vital, practical condition and character of man before he's born again. Do you know that you're born again today? Don't look to some decision that you've made. Many have made decisions. Many have believed on Jesus that were never truly born again. They were still of their father the devil according to Jesus in John chapter 8. There is evidence. True faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is evidence that you have been born again. Working righteousness in your life as defined by the Bible is evidence you've been born again. Loving the brethren by the Bible's definition of those terms shows that you have been born again. And if you've been born again, then you have been delivered from that depraved nature you got by your first birth because you've been born again. You now have two men living in you. An old man that you got from the first Adam and your parents and a new man that is created in the image of Him that created Him like the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, created in righteousness and true holiness. You have a new man in you that never sins, hates sin, and loves righteousness. You have an old man that always sins and hates righteousness in God. And it's the conflict between those two that we endure every day of our lives. And it's the spirit within us that chooses to put off the old man and to put on the new if we're born again. And if we're sincere about our faith in Christ. To rightly appreciate salvation by God's grace, we need to understand the predicament He saved us from. To rightly defend the doctrine of our salvation, we need to rightly understand that predicament. Each phase of salvation is a spectacular divine display. They're overwhelming. The five phases of salvation. When we think of the five phases of salvation, and we go back to the first one, the eternal phase, to think that God, before the foundation of the world, knew our names and wrote our names in the book of life and assigned us to the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved by Him and assigned the Lord Jesus Christ in covenant to die a substitutionary death for us, that is fabulous. That's overwhelming. That the great God, Jehovah, I am that I am, had a covenant relationship with us and knew us before the world began. But it's kind of distant and it's kind of abstract. The fact that Jesus Christ came in the fullness of time and died on the cross 2,000 years ago is kind of distant as well. We've never seen the cross. We didn't see Him on the cross. We didn't see Him living. We didn't see Him dying. We didn't see Him resurrected from the dead. We read about it. It's kind of distant. It's a transaction that was presented before God according to Hebrews chapter 9 by the eternal Spirit and accepted by Him. Glorification is beyond our comprehension because we're going to be given glorified bodies at some unknown time in the future when Jesus Christ comes back and resurrects our body from the grave. But you know there's this vital phase. And it is not distant. And it is not abstract. You had a remodeling done of your person. And that remodeling was giving you new life. It is called creation in the Bible. It's called resurrection. It's called regeneration. It's called quickening. It's called being born again. You think back about your first birth. You didn't have a thing to do with that first birth. You were born to two parents and you didn't have a clue about it for several years. And that was a pretty momentous event because it brought you into existence. 
But there was another momentous event that happened to you personally. Since your conception, John the Baptist, it happened to him in his mother's womb. You, we don't know when. I, I don't know when I was born again. But I was given another life. Like the first life I was given. The first life I was given was totally out of my control. God just gave me life through my parents and brought my soul into existence and your soul. But sometimes since then, if we're born again, we have had a powerful operation by the Spirit of God upon us that's given us a new life inside us so that these dramatic terms can be used very honestly and sincerely in the pages of Scripture that we've been born again. And that we have a new man. And that we have been recreated. It's stupendous. It's what God's done to get us out of the predicament of total depravity. And He has done it. And He's done it gloriously in all praise and glory to Him. This is not distant uh, like the eternal, legal, or final phases. It's a miraculous alteration of you since your conception. Because if it wasn't for that miraculous alteration of you, you wouldn't be here this morning and you wouldn't care about the things of God. Or if you were here, you'd just be sitting there, you know, thinking about what you're going to do this afternoon or what ridiculous things you have planned this week and whatever other wicked, foolish, carnal thoughts could go through your mind instead of thinking upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the glorious grace of God. Uh, This is no abstract concept or distant transaction. It's a creative, life-giving alteration of your person. God has come down and reworked you. You know, before the world began is one thing, and don't take, you know me better than to think that I'm making light of it. What Jesus did on the cross is distant. This is you. He has got inside of you and messed you up. He has re, what words do you want to use? I've used the Bible words and they're better than your words, but he's rewired you. He's given you a frontal lobotomy plus a whole lot more. He's totally changed us. Praise His glorious name. It's the undoing of what the first Adam did to us. There is a new you within you that should be put on daily while putting off the old depraved you. You have a totally depraved man inside of you and you have a right, you have a new man inside of you that is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now that's a big difference. Total depravity, true holiness. You have got to be kidding me, but they're both in us. Lord, help us to put on the new man that is made in true holiness. God warned Adam. Satan lied to Adam. Adam and Eve ate. Adam and Eve died. And now they were dead in their spiritual nature toward God and righteousness. And we inherited it from Adam. Genesis 5.3 tells us that Adam brought forth in his likeness after his image, Seth. And we come right down through the line from Adam um, inheriting that depraved nature. Now let me take a minute. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And let me review a point that I made last Sunday. That while it's rather technical and while it can be understood rather easily. And while it seems that I'm nitpicking. I just want us to always be honest and faithful and righteous and true and correct when we read Scripture. And that is, I want to separate for you again, total depravity from original sin. Now those are theological expressions. Total depravity is the T from tulip. The five-point description of Calvinism. Tulip, T for total depravity, U for unconditional election, 
L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P for perseverance of the saints. And those are the five points of Calvinism. Total depravity is the corruption of our nature. Original sin is the doctrine, and it's a true doctrine because it's taught right here in Romans 5, 12 through 19, that when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, we were legally held accountable for his sin. So that we die and will die and will be held accountable before God for having Adam's sin on us. Even if we did not sin ourselves, we would still go to hell for the sin of Adam because we are all responsible for the sin of Adam. You say, where does it say that in the Bible? Even if we didn't sin like Adam sinned, we'd be guilty for his sin and we would die because of it. It says it right here in Romans 12. Romans 5, 12 through 14. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned, after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. This passage is not talking about our nature. This passage is talking about our legal standing before God. We are held accountable for Adam's sin. You say, well, I don't like that. Who cares if you like it or not? Be thankful that you had such a great representative standing in for you. He was far and more intelligent and had a better relationship with God and a freer will than you'll ever have until you're glorified in heaven. Original sin means the original sin is held to our account. It's why babies die. Why do babies die? For the wages of sin is death. Why do babies die? Why do babies die in verse 14 that have not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression? Because they're held accountable for Adam's transgression. This is the legal phase. This is phase number two. It's the legal phase. Adam legally made us guilty before God. Jesus Christ obeys and legally makes us righteous before God. That is original sin. Total depravity is that in the day that Adam died, he ruined his nature, his internal thinking apparatus, his affections and his desires. And we get that when we are born. That is down here on earth. That is right now. That is inside of me. There is a boiling cauldron of sin called my old man. I got that from Adam. That is total depravity. I don't think straight. I don't perceive right. I don't appreciate good. I don't fear God. I don't love God. I love sin. I love the world. And I'll follow the devil willingly. That is total depravity. And we get that from Adam. And it's the vital phase. It's the vital phase. We have a vital principle within us a living principle within us, but it's dead toward spiritually, but it's in us that hates righteousness. And in the vital phase, the Holy Spirit, activated by the voice of the Son of God, regenerates us. We're born again and undoes what Adam did to us in the way of total depravity. See, Adam's affected us in several different ways. And one way he has affected us is original sin, in that we're accountable for him eating the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Each of you are guilty for eating the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Romans 5, 12 through 19 teaches that doctrine. We also have a corrupt nature from Adam to where we don't love righteousness and we don't love God and we get that from him as well. But that is total depravity. May the Lord help us see and know the difference. When we talk about total depravity, we're talking about a change in your nature. The nature of anything is the list of qualities or properties that make it what it is. And the list of qualities or properties that make you what you are are corrupt because of your first birth and relationship to Adam. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 where the word nature is used for us. Ephesians chapter 2. I just want you to be theologically or doctrinally correct about separating original sin from total depravity. It's the it's as great as separating the third phase, the vital phase of salvation from the second phase, or which is the legal phase. We have a legal standing before God, and uh, Adam ruined it because he was our representative in Eden, and Jesus Christ perfectly solved it because he was our representative on the cross. And so he legally changed our standing before God. But then there's this different thing. There's this nature within us of how we think, act, move, and choose that is corrupt, that needs to be changed by regeneration. It says in Ephesians 2, and you hath he quickened, verse 1, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. The word quickened means to make alive. You hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. When we have the Apostle Paul using the same word that Moses wrote down in Genesis chapter 2, that is Knife's internal consistency of the Word of God because there's only one author of the book, and that's the Holy Spirit. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And every man that has come from Adam has been dead spiritually toward God. Doesn't want anything to do with God. Will hide from God. Will use self-righteous means to protect himself from any little guilt or shame he has. And will blame others and will never repent. Because God must peradventure grant repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Otherwise we are taken captive by Satan at his will. And so we have the right subject under consideration because of the terminology of verse 1. But it says down in verse 3 as it describes this death in trespasses and sins, verse 3, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, were by nature the children of wrath even as others. The nature that we had, the list of properties or qualities that made us what we are, looked just like the children of wrath. That is, those that are on their way to hell. We were no different from them because we had the same list of properties and character traits that they have. And so that's what we mean by the nature of man that needs to be changed. It's not a physical or a mental defect. It's a spiritual defect. They can still think... I mean, this week I was looking at Genesis chapter 4 again and looking at the descendants of Cain, and they had quite a few inventions and patents to their record in Genesis chapter 4 because they can still think. They just don't want to think about God. In fact, they won't think about God. Through the pride of his countenance, he thinks he's such an inventor that he doesn't need God. He can figure things out and improve things himself without God. According to the Word of God in Psalm 10.4 that says, Through the pride of his countenance, the wicked will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. 
See, that's what's changed. Man can still think. He just won't think about God. Or if he thinks about God, it's to deny God and say he's an agnostic. Or it's to reject God and say he's an atheist. Or it's to make up God as just a little fable believed by little weak people like you and me. That's what they teach. That's what they say. It's the heart of man that's been completely ruined that corrupts man's decision making. No matter the level of IQ, it's the heart that makes the choices. Man can think about God. Man can think about Jesus Christ. Man can hear the gospel story of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, can visualize what's taken place, but he, he considers it foolishness. It's an old wives' fable for people that are looking for a crutch. He has no love or desire for it. God must shine in his heart as I open this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. God must change his nature so that he has any interest in that wonderful message that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Look at Romans chapter 1 and let me remind you of how much truth man does have, man does hold, and man does understand, yet is totally depraved. He'll never choose God. He'll always turn away from God. Even though he knows that there is a great divine being in the universe. Now I've done this before, but I'm doing it again for you. Chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now I'm just going to go down through this passage just like I did last Lord's Day and remind you of the many statements that are made here that God has revealed Himself, that man is capable of recognizing Him, that He is clearly seen, that they are without excuse, that they have every intellectual capacity for accepting, believing Him, but they won't out of their pride and rebellion. They hold the truth here in verse 18. Then as you go further, verse 19, that which may be known of God is manifest in them. Remember, I've taught you what the word manifest means. It's clearly exposed to view. It's revealed. It's been discovered. Notice, that which may be known of God. God may be known, and they knew Him. That which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. I show you these expressions. Verse 20, the invisible things of Him, that is, though God is invisible from the creation of the world, He's clearly seen. For the invisible things of God are clearly seen from the creation of the world. By God creating the world, you can see some invisible things about God. Being understood, it goes on to say in that verse, so that they are without excuse in that verse. And then it goes on in this passage, when they knew God, they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God. That means they they understood that He had glory greater than what they made. They changed the truth of God into a lie. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Verse 28. They were haters of God. In verse 30. And knowing the judgment of God, that they which do such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Verse 32. Look at that indictment. Man is intellectually capable of understanding God, seeing Him, being clearly convinced that He exists, 
but through the pride of their countenance and professing themselves to be wise, verse 22, they became fools. Verse 21, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. They would not give Him the glory that He was a creator that to whom they owed everything in their lives. Neither were they thankful for every good thing that they enjoyed, even though it came from His hands and they knew it, but became vain in their imaginations. They became this way in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. That's a passive construction where God is darkening their hearts further after they turn away from Him. Because this is Paul giving us an expanded notation upon Psalm 19 where David said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Day into day uttereth speech, and night into night showeth knowledge. Mm -hmm. Knowledge and speech. There is a sermon preached every single day in every language, in every dialect, to everyone on this planet, and it reveals the glory of God. But when they know the glory of God because of their rebellion against Him, they hide in the trees of the garden, they take care of themselves with their own little religious inventions, and they reject God, they don't repent and run to God and seek His forgiveness, nor do they submit their lives to Him. This is total depravity. This is what we all are by nature. We'd be in some Catholic church this morning if it weren't for the grace of God coming through that door putting a little holy water on us from the little bowl that's there, buying ourselves a few candles. We'd be sitting there in preparation for worship, thumbing our rosary beads and saying prayers to Mary and going forward and having the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ stuck on our tongue and thinking that now we're okay with God. Instead of humbling ourselves before His great power and realizing that only through the Lord Jesus Christ can salvation come. Total depravity. The Bible's description of this thing is death. Always go back to the word death. Because that's the word the Bible promised in Genesis 2.17. That's the thing that you're delivered from in Revelation chapter 20 by resurrection. Because resurrection delivers you from what? Death. So death is the best word to choose. It's the one we just looked at in Ephesians chapter 2. And it's used elsewhere as well. And we want to use it. Noble deeds do not mean a thing. Look at Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 4. Proverbs chapter 21. Someone will say, well, I've known noble people that didn't believe on Jesus Christ. I don't think they were born again, but they were good, noble people. No, they weren't. What in the world are you talking about? You need to go home and tear your Bible into pieces and burn it. Because the Bible says there isn't such a thing. The Bible says there is none that doeth good, no, not one. So why are you saying there are some? And those some happen to have been in your lifetime that you laid eyes on and you made a judgment that they were good. The Bible says there is not one good. And it repeats that over and over. Psalm 14, twice. Psalm 53, twice. Romans chapter 3, twice. There is none that doeth good. No. Not one. You say, well, I've seen people that were good. I told you about the Boy Scout last week that laid his coat in the mud puddle to help the old lady walk walk from one sidewalk to the other. Remember? Why did he lay his coat in the mud puddle? Because he's good? Because he's doing righteousness? Because he fears God? He loves God? And he wants to love his neighbor as the second great commandment? Or was he trying to get himself a merit badge? Okay, we've got that one figured out, don't we? He's wanting to get himself a merit badge because at his last troop meeting, 
he was told that he should do good deeds, and if enough good deeds are spotted, he'll get his next merit badge so that he can become an Eagle Scout. So as he lays his coat down, he says, I can't wait to get to the next troop meeting so that I can tell the troop about laying my coat down. I hope this woman will call my troop master. In fact, I'll give her a business card before I leave her of what troop I'm part of so that I can get... And it goes on forever. And so while you look at that boy and you say, that's a good boy. What are you talking about? Don't blaspheme my God and don't contradict His Word. You don't know what you're looking at. You don't know how to judge it. We judge it by the Word of God. And so I want to show you in Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 4, a high look, that's arrogance and haughtiness, and a proud heart, that's arrogance on the inside. We know that, we know that the first two are sins. And the plowing of the wicked is sin. That's why I used the example of a farmer last week. You know, a Christian farmer can go out and plow with a whole different mindset than a wicked farmer goes out and plows. The wicked farmer is out there in his ambition to be rich, and he goes on and he criticizes. He's complaining about the heat of the sun. He's complaining about this, and he's complaining about that. He's complaining about why his ox isn't bigger, and oh, how his ox eats too much. And I went through all that. Remember it. Because whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And so while you're looking at two fields and there's two men out there plowing, one is committing further sins against his Creator God and the other is blessing and praising him and turns farming into an act of righteousness and an act of worship. What a difference. And it all comes from the heart of man. Look at Proverbs chapter 15. Let's move to religious works. Religious activities of men. This is how depraved we are. This is what the Bible does and says in condemning us. Romans, Proverbs, excuse me, Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is His delight. So wicked men go to church. Wicked men go to church for the same reasons that Adam and Eve took fig leaves and made themselves aprons. They wanted a little bit of religious covering to cover their wickedness. But it doesn't do any good. It didn't do any good to God. Because God had to make them coats of skins. And it doesn't do any good at the Catholic Church. God looks at it and considers it an abomination. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Just like Cain's was. Cain came at the right time to the right place to the right God with a sacrifice, but it wasn't the right sacrifice. And Cain wasn't right with God. And God didn't accept it because it was an abomination to him. Look at chapter 21 of this same book. Proverbs 21 and verse 27. The sacrifice of the wicked is abomination. How much more when he bringeth it with a wicked mind? But I don't want the second half of the verse. I want you to think about what the first half of the verse means in light of the second half. Now you can imagine that if a wicked man brings a sacrifice with a wicked mind, he actually has a wicked motive that he's consciously thinking about when he brings a sacrifice. You would say, yep, I believe that, Lord. That is real abomination in the second half. But the first half is, he isn't coming with a wicked mind like that. He's coming with fig leaf religion. And what does it say? The sacrifice of the wicked is abomination. Without the wicked mind being involved, doing it with a wicked motive. Praise God for the Word of God. If we'll just read far enough, we'll find out exactly what total depravity is. Total depravity is that men love darkness and hated light. 
And when light came into this world, they hated it, and it was the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Look at Romans chapter 3 with me again. Romans chapter 3, total depravity. We're proving. We want to prove every way that we can from all verses all over the Bible that man is born dead in trespasses and sins, and God has to give him life before he can ever believe the gospel. And that is why some people believe the gospel and other people do not believe the gospel is because God hasn't given them life. He has to give life first. He has to command light out of darkness first before they will ever see the glorious, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 19. Let me review with you these 10 verses. 10 through 19. These 10 verses are taken from six passages in the book of Psalms and the book of Isaiah. Five from Psalms, one from Isaiah. Verses 10 through 12 are taken from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Let's read them again. Over there in Psalms, it says, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that... And so let's take up. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.11 There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Romans 3, 10 through 12. So when we say total depravity, we mean in its extent to all men. It gets us all. All men are condemned with a, with a corrupt nature. Verses 13 through 17 describe the extent to all parts of life. Verse 13, their throat is an open sepulcher. Of course, it's talking about speech. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. There's three condemnations of speech. Verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Now we have four. 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. In order for feet to be swift to shed blood, that involves the hands, because hands are the tools that are used to kill. But feet take you there, so we're dealing with the whole body of man. Destruction and misery are in their ways. This is their lifestyle. And the way of peace, this is their lifestyle. Have they not known? So man is utterly corrupt. His mouth, his feet, his hands, his lifestyle, his conduct, his character, the way he lives is corrupt. It's, it's like a poison of an asp. It's like a dead, it's like an open sepulcher. That's where dead people are. It talks about destruction and misery. And then verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The foundational quality necessary to ever please God is lacking from their lives. This is total depravity. Total in its extent of all men, total in all the different parts of life, and total in the underlying necessary quality to ever do anything to please God, and that's to fear Him. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So when we get over to Acts chapter 10 and we read about Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian band, all, all of Acts chapter 10 is about Cornelius. He's, he's, he's a great character. It says he feared God with all his house. When we, when we happen upon somebody in the Bible that fears God with all his house, and we have this verse right here, Something's happened. Either Romans 3 is wrong or Cornelius has had a change. Which one do you want to take? And so here we go again, separating ourselves from everybody else that Cornelius was saved before Peter ever met him in Acts chapter 10. And that excites us, doesn't it? Cornelius just didn't know what to do to please God. How many months would it have taken for Cornelius to think of baptism? I mean, he's an Italian Roman soldier. How many months? would he have finally figured out, oh, 
I had to get one of my servants to take me out here in a pool and dunk me underwater with my clothes on. He needed Peter for that. Amen. He didn't need Peter to get him born again. God had already changed him completely. His prayers were being heard in heaven. I thought it said the sacrifice of the wicked are, is an abomination to the Lord. Yeah. Why were Cornelius' sacrifices of giving alms to the people and praying to God always being received in heaven? Oh, yeah. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Do you know how we did all of that? Romans 3.18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So when we find someone in the Bible fearing God, aha, uh -huh, aha, uh -huh, that ain't no man hiding in the trees of the garden. Do you know what Cornelius was doing? He was out in the pathway of the garden in the cool of the evening begging God every day. Praying to God always. I have, I have goosebumps and my goosebumps don't mean a thing to you, but do you have goosebumps? God changed Cornelius. God said, let there be light. And light flooded his soul, though he didn't know about the Lord Jesus Christ yet. But what he did know, he knew and he obeyed. He prayed to God all way. He feared God with his whole house. That means he taught his house, who God had also blessed. And he gave much alms to the people, and God accepted those alms before he ever met Peter. Peter just told him what Jesus had done for him. And he got excited about that started speaking in tongues, and they threw him in the swimming pool there, and he was baptized. All glory to God. All glory to God for having made that change first. I love Romans 3. If, if, you, if you write in your Bibles, and you don't have to write in your Bibles to be a spiritually-minded Christian, 10 through 12 is the extent of all men. 13 through 17 is the extent of all parts of man's life. And, and 18 is the underlying basic quality that we need to ever please God is missing as well. So man is just totally depraved. That's the, that's the point. You know, when the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who wants to follow their heart this afternoon? You know, the world goes, I do. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Is that depraved enough for you? The heart is deceitful above all things. Who's the biggest liar in the world? Think about Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things. Your heart's the biggest liar in the world. And it's desperately wicked. That's, that's good enough for me. That sounds like total depravity. Rehabilitation will not work. I showed you that last Lord's Day. Isaiah 26.10 says, Take the wicked and put him in the land of uprightness. He won't learn righteousness. You can take a pig out of the mud, but he's going to make mud wherever you put him. You can put him in your carefully manicured front lawn with that beautiful fescue cut right down. It's so green and it's so beautiful. Just give him a little bit of time. With it, I won't even tell you how he's going to make mud because some of you wouldn't enjoy that right now. But he will make mud because that's his nature to make mud. You can put a pink bow on him. Is that going to slow him down, Emma? No, pink bows don't slow down sows from wallowing in the mud. And you know, we can tell somebody that they're born again because they made some little decision for Jesus, but unless God regenerated them and gave them a new nature, they're not going to change. The proof. We want that word from Genesis 2.17. I am repeating myself because learning comes by repetition. I want our children in this church to know what we believe about total depravity. God told Adam that in the day he ate the fruit thereof, he would surely die. Right, Gabriel? He would surely die. He would die! That very day. 
Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 again and remind ourselves that the Apostle Paul picks up that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there's only one author of our Bible, even though there are 40 writers of 66 books and two testaments, and 1,189 chapters and some 31,101 verses, there's one author. And so we have the same word chosen in Ephesians 2.1, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. You know, the word quickened, sometimes I've used illustrations about that white stuff that's under your fingernail. If I cut your fingernail, you can't feel it. If I stick a hat pin under your nail, you can feel it. Because it's called the quick under your nail because it's a, it's a, it's alive. Or in the Bible, it says that Jesus Christ is coming back to judge the quick and the dead. So since the quick is set in opposition to the dead, quick must mean those that are still living or those that are alive. And so you hath he made alive, or you hath he quickened, or you hath he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now this chapter starts off with an and, because there's two resurrections being compared. I taught you this last Lord's Day. I never want you to forget it. Verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1 is the exceeding greatness of God's power that causes us to believe. If you ever believe the gospel, it's because God had to exert His exceeding great power towards you. And it is the same power that raised the dead body of Jesus from the grave after three days and three nights being there. Because it says in verse 20, this great power, according to the working of His mighty power in verse 19, verse 20 now, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places. So it took God's exceeding great power, His mighty power, to raise Jesus from the dead in the tomb. And that is being compared because that is a state of death, being quickened and brought to life. And it's the same power exerted toward us who believe. And so chapter 2 starts off with, And you hath He quickened. Why does it say, And you hath He quickened? Because God quickened Christ first. God quickened Christ from the dead. Now, if you want to say that man isn't dead in 2.1, then you know what you're going to have to say about Jesus in 1.19 and 20? That He wasn't really dead. He was really dead, and we're, re- we're really dead before we're born again. And you hath He quickened. Verses 2 and 3 describe the state of that death. And verse 1 tells us the power of it. And verse 4 tells us the source of it. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead. That's as bad as it can get. The word even is drawing out a, conclu- out a point and showing that even when we were dead, we weren't doing a thing toward God. We were His enemies. We were following the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience, as described in verses 2 and 3. But even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. See? Together with Christ. Jesus was raised from physical death and sits in heaven. We are raised from spiritual death and we sit vitally in heaven with Him because verse 6 goes on to say that. I want verse 5 right now for where it says, By grace ye are saved. When we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And forgive me for being a little loud. That saved a wretch like me. Praise His glorious name. He quickened us even when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Look at Romans chapter 8. We're talking, we're proving right now. We're proving that man's really messed up. 
before God gets a hold of them. And God only gets a hold of those that He gave to Jesus Christ because that's His choice. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. This is our state by nature, enmity against God. Adam and Eve were enmity against God. They didn't come out and confess their sins, apologize for what they had done, beg for His forgiveness or repent. They were enmity against Him. They blamed each other. They blamed the devil. They hid and tried to cover their guilt. They tried to stay away from God. They tried not to be found. They didn't want to meet God anyway. But the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God. It won't obey. Neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. You show There's only two conditions that you can be in. Flesh and spirit. And if you're in the flesh, you can't please God. The only way you can get a person in the flesh to get saved is to do something displeasing to God. That's just ridiculous. That's why I said it. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. There is not a single sinner on earth that even likes God. You say, I'll bet there are. There are 7.6 billion people on earth. There probably are some. Then you're denying the Bible. There is not a single sinner on earth that even likes God or wants to obey or please Him. There is not a single sinner on earth just waiting to hear the offer of Jesus for salvation. Not one. You say, well then why do people go forward at Billy Graham crusades? I answer, why do people go forward in the tabernacle of the Mormon church in Salt Lake City? Where are we now? Have we made any progress in divine things? There has never been a sinner on earth whose heart would melt hearing about Calvary. If Calvary's scene would not provoke hatred in each person, then that Savior's holy demands surely would. You say, but there are people whose hearts melt when they hear about the Lord Jesus Christ dying on the cross of Calvary. Yes, I know. That's my whole point. That's what I'm preaching this for. They're already regenerated. Because if they weren't regenerated, they would hate that message. They have no interest in it at all. They consider it foolishness and a crutch of the people. When Paul said in Romans 7.18, there is no good thing in my flesh, how much good can a man in the flesh do? That wasn't hard, was it? If there's no good thing in my flesh? If man's flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, how many in the flesh will obey the spirit? According to, anyway, okay. I know, you know. I have, Ephesians chapter 4. This is, this one is sweet. If you want to write one down beside Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, write down Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Listen to this indictment of our race of Gentiles. Ephesians 4. If you want to write down a little elaboration, on death and trespasses and sins in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, just put over there in the margin 4, colon, 17 through 19. Listen to these words. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Their minds are puffed up to nothingness, profitlessness, having the understanding darkened being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over 
unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Can anybody here suggest a better way that one sentence could be used to describe total depravity? Is there anybody that wants to take a stab at it? Did you hear all those words? Are you able to read down through 17 and 19 and pick up the words vanity, darkened, alienated, ignorance, blindness, past feeling, given themselves over, lasciviousness, all uncleanness, and then to top it off, let's just go ahead and do all that with greediness. That is man. Does anybody in here understand that if it weren't for the grace of God, that would be them? Does, it, does everybody in here understand that they have a part of them that is like this? There I go again. The only one in here. Thank you. I have three or four more. Oh, brothers, look at that. That's it. That's total depravity right there. Thank you, Lord, for giving us such wonderful descriptions. The delusion of this matter. Satan's first lie continues to be told by preachers that say man is not dead, that man has a free will. That all you have to do is present Jesus to them and if they invite Jesus into their heart, then they can be saved. But the Bible says they will never invite Jesus into their heart because God, when He looked down from heaven upon the children of men, did not see any that understood, did not see any that were seeking after God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No, not one. So God has to make a change in a man before He will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in a true and sincere way that is evidence of eternal life. Lots of people believe on Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean a thing. And it says that in John chapter 2, John chapter 6, 7, and 8, that men believed on Him, but He did not commit Himself to them because they did not sincerely and truly believe on Him. They were not born again believers. You know, preachers today will blab about man's free will and his power and his freedom and his ability to choose. They'll invent something that they call prevenient grace, which is grace that comes before regeneration, that gets a person amped up a little bit so that they can have a free will. That's what Arminians call it, prevenient grace. They say that God will not save you against your will, but brethren, what we believe here is if God doesn't save us against our will, no one's going to be saved. Because our will is against God. The carnal mind is, is enmity against the law of God. Jesus said, ye will not come to me. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Oh yes. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. You know, with, with sufficient ignorant thinking, they'll say that baptism washes away this corruption of nature and a child is born again. The vast majority of Christians believe in baptismal regeneration that the new man, the new birth, regeneration, quickening comes by putting a little bit of H2O on an infant. That is, that is just flat out corruption of the Word of God. And it shouldn't surprise us one bit. Satan corrupted it in Genesis 3-4, Thou shalt not surely die. And it's corrupted by his preachers ever since. What do they do? Because of their delusion that man is just waiting to invite Jesus in and get saved, they come up with food or medical missions. If my family was starving in Biafra, it'll be hard to find Biafra on a map right now. If my family were starving in Biafra and you came to me and you had this big boiling pot of porridge sitting over there with some biscuits and and uh, cereal and a couple candy bars around it from America, and you said, we want to tell you about Jesus. Jesus died for you. Do you want to invite him into your heart? 
I'd be on the ground so fast in front of you with my nose in the dirt, my hands outstretched, begging and pleading and crying, tears running down my cheeks in order to get my family fed. And they've done that forever. There is, there is no food ministry in the Bible. There's no medical ministry in the Bible. You know, if you had dying relatives, you'd invite Jesus into your heart to have your mother given some vaccination or some antibiotic that she needs. They come up with rock concerts for youth that with sufficient volume and emotional appeals by half-naked people on stage that someone might invite Jesus into their heart. They have jail ministries giving inmates the first visitor that they've had in six months. They'll invite Jesus into their heart. Oh, but the Bible says if Lazarus coming back from the dead won't cause anyone to move, then what in the world are these, what are, what in the world are these methods doing? Since these methods do get results, what is happening? They're false results. And so salvation results, decisions are piled up by emotional or other manipulation without any fruit. There's confusion. People are told they're saved and they're not. There's a controversy about the lordship controversy. Do you know what it's down to now? Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. I want to go to heaven. I believe that you're my Savior. Amen. Or, dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. I want to go to heaven. Will you save me? Amen. That's what they reduced it now down to. You can go on, type it into a Google search box. Sinner's Prayer. And you can read about it. See, there's no Lord, there's no repentance, there's no changed life, there's no commitment, there's nothing. Nowhere is that ever taught in the Bible. Nowhere was that ever practiced in the Bible. When men came to John the Baptist, he said, bring forth fruits, meet for repentance. Show me some repentance. Don't just even tell me repentance. They don't even want the word repentance in their sinner's prayer. They don't even want the word Lord in their sinner's prayer. And I've taught you this. This is what happens once you start down the road of error. You will go and go and go because once you've left the Word of God, what verses in the Bible will stop you from going all the way? There are none. We must stick with everything the Lord teaches us in the Bible. Oh, the solution. Look at John chapter 5. I was 20 years old when the Lord shined upon this verse in my life. John chapter 5. We're talking about the solution now to total depravity. The solution is in the power of the voice of the Son of God. It is not in my voice. It's not in an outline. It's not in anyone's voice except the voice of the Son of God Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24 gives us the context that we are talking about eternal life and being born again because the last words are, is passed from death unto life. So how does it happen? John 5.25, Jesus speaking. If you have a red letter edition Bible, which I don't, then you're looking at the red writing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. That is how you come into eternal life. Jesus Christ says, live. And all of a sudden you have a different, a new nature inside of you. Spiritual things become important. You have a, when you sin, this new man is telling you you should not have done that. Your conscience is enlivened by your new man. And you are changed. Now someone will say, well when I look at the verse, it says, that the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. So it looks like they're making a choice. It looks like they're hearing Jesus invite them, ask them to invite Him into their hearts, and then when they do that, they, they get eternal life. Okay? 
You, you want to take that position? Are you ready to sell yourself out on that? You want to shinny out just a little bit further on your branch while I light up my chainsaw? My chainsaw is verses 28 and 29. Look. Marvel not at this. What I just told you about sinners living in verse 25, or dead men living. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear His voice. And shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Now in verse 28, it says that those that are in the graves shall hear His voice. Are they hearing His voice actively? Are they down there? Oh, I think I hear Jesus inviting me up. Or is this a passive hearing of the voice of the Son of God when He is going to descend to this earth? Earth, and the Bible says in First Thessalonians verse chapter 4, with a shout! And the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Do you think they're listening and deciding whether they're going to obey that voice or not? They're coming out. And so they come out the first time in verse 25. These are two resurrections. Do you want to learn some Bible doctrine right now? This is two resurrections. There's a resurrection in verse 25. There's a resurrection in verses 28 and 29. The one in 25 is a spiritual resurrection from total depravity in a state of death and trespasses and sins. The resurrection in 28 and 29 is our bodies out of the grave in the last day. Verse 25 is the first resurrection spoken of in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6. Upon such the second death shall have no power. A person that's born again by John 5.25 will never face the second death. His name is in the book of life, which is why he's been born again by the power of the voice of the Son of God. This isn't the voice of the preacher. This is the voice of the Son of God. And it takes the same power that it's going to take for the corrupt dust of Adam and everyone else since Adam that's in the graves to be brought forth. That's incredible power. Life-giving power of the voice of the Son of God. When I turn over to John chapter 11, I see it illustrated in a friend of Jesus, a close friend, one that he loved, whose name was Lazarus. Now he's been in there four days, and he stinks. And Jesus says, roll the stone away. And his sisters say, Lord, he stinks. Roll it away. Verse 43, John eleven forty three, And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! Do you think Lazarus is in there dead? Oh my, do I want life again? Do I really want to go through this again and have to get up every morning and go to work? Or did he have life? You know, they believe in their Big Bang Theory. We believe in our Big Bang Theory. God speaks, and bang, it happens. Amen. And Lazarus has life. But now he's all wrapped up. So, so you can read about it. This is the only role that a preacher ever gets. And I like this little comparison. This is not taught in this passage. I am illustrating it for you from the Bible. John chapter 5 says that life is given by the voice of the Son of God. I've just shown you how it happens. And out comes this man, and he can't move very well because he's all wrapped up in burial clothes. And when he had thus spoken, verse 43, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth, and he that was bound, de- he that was dead, he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. He can't see where he's going. He doesn't know what to do. He can't move. And Jesus saith unto them, loose him and let him go. And that's all a preacher ever gets to do because it's God that gives life. 
and we loose them from the bondage of false religion and send them on their way because that's what the whole gospel is about, finding a Cornelius that God has said live. And Cornelius lives and Peter comes along and says, Cornelius, I perceive that God has accepted you even though you're a Gentile and here's what you need to do and Jesus has done this for you and you should get baptized and you should start a church here and set." he looses his grave clothes. He's, he's a Gentile and he is, could God reach down and save an Italian? Yes, he did. Praise the Lord. Amen. That's the solution, the voice of the Son of God. It's called a resurrection. It's called a regeneration. It's called a quickening. It's called a creation. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. No wonder Jesus said to Nicodemus, Ye must be born again. The whole issue of natural religion, meaning our natures, the whole issue of nature religion, Ye must be born again. Nicodemus had never heard about it. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus got quite a lesson that day. Oh, thank you, Lord. He has shined in our hearts. Brethren, the evidence of it is so wonderful. I've preached that to you recently. Just go look with me at 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Let's grab a couple John verses and close about the evidence that total depravity has been ripped out of you. Do you have a conflict going on in you? Is there a part of you that loves the Lord Jesus Christ, loves the Word of God, loves to be in His house, loves to worship Him? Where does that come from? Sincerely loves Him. When you sin, you confess it. You grieve, you, you grieve about your sins. And you run, to the, you run to Christ and ask for forgiveness. You run to the Lord. Where did that come from? God spoke that into existence. That's your living new man, created in righteousness and true holiness. 1 John chapter 2, verse 29. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. 1 John 2, 29. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. I thought Romans 3.10 said, There is none righteous, no, not one. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness, there is none righteous, no, not one. How about 3.7? Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. There is none righteous, no, not one. In our natural state, there is none righteous, no, not one. But after we're born again, how do we know that we're born again and that we're on our way to heaven? How do we, how do we narrow down on that vital phase of salvation and know that we have a vital principle in us of righteousness, a new man? How do we know that we've really been born again? We do righteousness. Contrary to nature. Contrary to our old nature. Because remember, our new man was... Uh, fourth time. Ephesians 4.24 Put on the new man which is created in righteousness and true holiness. It means you have a new man. Righteousness defined by the Bible. What the Bible says is the right thing to do. When you do it and you do it sincerely and you do it zealously, God put that in you. You know, then we look at 3.14. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. So if you have brotherly love, do you know what the Bible says about total depravity? 
Paul says about him and Titus in Titus 3.3, For we ourselves were sometime foolish, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And all of a sudden you're loving the brethren. Did Paul love the brethren quite a bit? Do you think he could look at his life and say, I, I think I love the brethren? Was he willing to spend and be spent even though they loved him less? The more he loved them? Speaking of the Corinthians, yes. That's the evidence. Brethren, this is the evidence that you're born again. 5.1 Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. No one can believe. No one will believe. Ye will not come to me. No man can come except the Father which hath sent me draw him. So these are the evidences. The evidences that I taught you in a long, extensive series about the assurance of eternal life, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, loving the brethren, doing righteousness, being baptized, hating sin, living for Christ, all those things prove that you are born of God because a man in his natural state does not, is not convicted to do those things. You show the change that God has made in your life. Baptism is a wonderful event. Do you know what baptism says? That old nature that I had, that old man that I had, this is Romans 6, 5 through 7. That old nature I had, I'm burying it today. Because I have a new nature. I'm going to rise to walk in newness of life. My first father got me in trouble with death. My second savior, my savior, the second Adam, introduced me to life by giving me life. And by my baptism, I'm burying my old man to rise to walk with my new man. Even regenerated, do you know how bad your old nature is? Do you ask God to uphold you by His free spirit? As in Psalm 51, do you know how bad your children are by their old nature? Do you know that you and your children, you and your children, your children's children, you and anyone in this church are capable of anything? But for the grace of God. You should know that this is where we start to present our doctrine of salvation is total depravity. This is why we're different from others because we start with total depravity. We have to end up with unconditional salvation and regeneration before faith. Do you know that you're born again? Let's prove that we're born again. By putting on that new man that's been given to us in the new birth, putting off the old man that we got from our first birth and living a righteous life and fulfilling the lists that are found in Galatians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 3. In those three places, the flesh against the spirit is contrasted by a list of the character traits of each. And the old man and the new man by a list of the character traits of each. Those three passages give us lists. Do you like to operate by lists? then put a list on the refrigerator of this is the old man, put a list on the refrigerator this is the new man, and remind your family this is how we live if we're a born-again family. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending the Lord Jesus Christ to correct our natures and to alter us drastically since we were conceived by our first parents. We thank you, and we look forward to that day when we shall pass out of this existence and our old man dies for good, and all we're left is the new man to spend eternity in heaven. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.